And welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with talking about Gaza. Maybe it makes sense to, uh, to start by talking about casualty numbers. Uh, yeah, uh, the latest casualties that I have seen, and uh, this isn't going to be out till tomorrow, so they'll be out of date by then. Uh, but the latest I've seen are uh, 1,417 people killed in Gaza so far. It's been six days of unrelenting airstrikes uh, at a pace that is shocking, apparently, even by past Israeli bombardments of of Gaza uh, are concerned. The number of people uh, wounded, I think, is in the thousands. I haven't actually even seen anybody attempt uh, an estimate of that in days. Um, There are over 330,000 people in Gaza who have now been displaced in some fashion. I mean, by displaced, I mean left their homes. They're obviously still in Gaza because there's no way out of Gaza. It is a very small area that is very densely populated. There's nothing for them to do, no place for them to go, really. There's no shelter to speak of. But they are displaced in the sense of no longer being in their residences. Uh, The death toll in Israel since Saturday's Hamas and company attacks, uh, the, the militant attacks, is still, I think, uh, somewhere around 1,200. I say still, that number had been increasing by the day as uh, you know, kind of recovery efforts uh, were underway and people were finding more bodies uh, that uh, you know of people who were killed uh, in that attack. Uh, that seems to have leveled off. I think. Um, Beyond that, again, I, I don't want to minimize or diminish what's happening. It's it's uh, by all accounts just extraordinarily brutal air campaign but it's it's sort of a steady state now over the last few days there the the game now is waiting or the uh you know the 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 big event to come is when are the israelis going to undertake their ground incursion it seems almost a foregone conclusion that that's going to happen at some point it's just sort of a a, like i say a kind of a waiting game now to see uh when it will take place and Blinken, uh, Blinken has visited Israel. Can we talk a bit about that? Uh, yeah, Anthony Blinken. Joe Biden said a couple of days ago that he was dispatching Blinken to Israel as a show of support. Um, the U.S. has already sent a carrier, a, a, a carrier group, uh, the I think the Gerald Ford uh, carrier group to the Eastern Mediterranean, and another show of support. It's got a second carrier group apparently on standby. Uh, to deploy to the region uh, if, I guess, more support is needed. It's sending weapons already, munitions, to uh, support the Israeli war effort. Blinken uh, went to, you know, kind of do a hands-on, this is terrible, we stand behind Israel uh, visit. He did uh, say, they claim that he kind of expressed to Israeli officials that they need to abide by the so-called laws of war or, uh, you know, show some uh, restraint in the devastation that they're visiting upon the civilians in Gaza. Uh, he also, at the same time, uh, told 
Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, that uh, the U.S. will, quote, always be there. Uh, so I would say that's a mixed message, uh, frankly, and there's no indication from anybody in the Biden administration that they're prepared to, uh, there's some level of violence that they won't countenance, that there's some level of retaliation or death or uh, suffering to come. Uh, the siege, I should say, is still on as well if we're talking about suffering. It's not just the bombs. It's uh, Israel has cut off fuel, food, water, pretty much anything it can uh, to Gaza. So people are dealing uh, with shortages of, of basic humanitarian needs, hospitals, uh, already really bereft of, of supplies because of the blockade uh, are running out of uh, materials. They're also running out of electricity because the power plant in Gaza is shut down. Uh, it has no more fuel uh, and generators are only going to last uh, for so long. So, uh, you know, the material suffering here is immense. Uh, and like I say, there's no indication that there's any uh, level to which this could rise that, that the Biden administration would really step in and say, okay, that's enough. Uh, we, we need to, we need to ratchet things down despite, uh, some, some fig leaf rhetoric, uh, I guess about, uh, showing restraint. Thanks, Derek. And if people aren't aware, we released a number of specials on the war this week, and we've also made available for free for just a few more days our six-part series with Rashid Khalidi on the history of Palestine. So please check those out. Um, let's move on to Iran. And the administration has refrozen $6 billion from the prisoner swap. So what's been going on? Yeah, this is um, this has been reported all day, and I'm not sure if it's official policy or if it's just something they've kind of done under the table. I, I think it's more the latter. Uh, the administration has, uh, as people know, they, they did this uh, prisoner swap deal with with Iran, uh, where it uh, released six billion or so dollars uh, in Iranian money that was frozen in South Korea. That money was transferred to Qatar uh, and made accessible to the Iranian government for use in purchasing non-sanctioned items, meaning humanitarian goods, food, medicine, etc., uh, under the strict under strict U.S. and, and Qatari supervision. Uh, supposedly, the administration has now given the Qataris a nudge and said, uh, don't let the Iranians have any of this money. This is a purely political decision. Uh, the Biden administration is taking heat from uh, many corners in Washington over having done this deal in light of the, the, the events in Gaza in recent days. The thinking being that Iran, we know, has, has been a supporter of, of Hamas. Hamas is a, a client of the IRGC. And, and uh, you know, there have been supplies and, and money and, and other things that the Iranians have have sent support that they've given to Hamas in the past. Uh, that's been conflated, I think, quite a bit with the idea that, that Iran planned or otherwise facilitated this particular attack, which again, there's no evidence for that. U.S. and Israeli officials have said that they don't have any evidence. The absence of evidence obviously is not evidence of absence, but they haven't found any hard evidence linking Iran to this specific attack uh, as yet. Uh, nevertheless, uh, in D.C. logic, uh, somehow this $6 billion that was just released to Qatar that the Iranians haven't even really had time to access, somehow this money specifically uh, has paid for uh, this weekend's uh, horrific attacks by Hamas 
uh, in southern Israel. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't I don't know how to make that make sense, except I guess it makes sense in, in D.C. logic. So the administration's taken criticism and it has apparently decided to respond to that criticism by uh, essentially reneging on the deal. Now, we don't know how long uh, this money is going to be frozen again. It might be released uh, at some point uh, when things have calmed down. Uh, but I think you have to say now this is we're in, you know, fool me once, fool me twice territory with the Iranians. Now this will be uh, another agreement that the U.S. supposedly entered into in good faith and then yanked the rug out from under it uh, not very long after. You have to wonder why in the future uh, Iran would do any deal with the United States. And, uh, you know, of course, the United States has all the leverage there and holds all the cards. So uh, everybody still has to do deals with the U.S. even when the U.S doesn't keep its end of the bargain, but uh, it still strikes me as a as an international black eye for a, a government that has to at some point deal with the quote unquote bad guys. You can't just ignore them. Uh, you do have to talk to them. And if you have no credibility, then that makes things more difficult, it seems to me. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about South Korea, where the U.S. has just sent an aircraft carrier group. What's going on there? Uh, yes, the USS Ronald Reagan, friend of the show, both the ship and the president, uh, is in South Korea. <laughs> especially the ship. <laughs> especially the ship. Uh, is in uh, South Korea with its carrier group. This is part of a uh, a deal that the South Korean U.S. government's reached uh, a few months ago to increase the visibility or the presence of what are called uh, strategic U.S. military assets. So things like nuclear submarines, aircraft carriers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in South Korea as a show of force uh, to try to deter North Korea. Of course, this kind of stuff usually only inflames North Korea, but uh, that's not, I guess, part of the consideration. So yes, the uh, the Reagan is in South Korea. Uh, it, it's been about six months since the U.S. had a carrier group in South Korea. And uh, uh, as I recall, the North Koreans didn't react well the last time. So I suspect that you will see some uh, some type of lashing out, whether that's, you know, more weapons tests or, you know, whatever Kim Jong-un has uh, in his pocket. Uh, you'll probably see that over the coming days as a, as a demonstration uh, while the Reagan is in port. Let's talk about Sudan, uh, which has normalized ties with Iran. Yes, uh, the Sudanese government, such as it is, uh, and the Iranian government announced on Monday that they're going to restore bilateral diplomatic ties. Uh, they broke off ties in 2016, the same time, uh, around the same time Iran and Saudi Arabia broke off ties. And indeed, this, the Sudanese government was just following the Saudis' lead uh, at that time. This is uh, similar to, to the uh, kind of thaw between Iran and Saudi Arabia. This is going to involve reopening embassies and trying to reestablish some just basic, normal diplomatic ties. There's no timetable, as far as I know, for reopening embassies, but there was a statement from the Sudanese foreign ministry. Again, Sudan doesn't really have all that much of a government these days, but what what passes for the Sudanese foreign ministry uh, said that they would be reopening embassies soon. uh, So take that for what it's worth. Also, how's the conflict in Sudan proceeding? Yes, uh, there was a new estimate last week from the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, ACLED, uh, that raised uh, their estimate of the number of people killed in the almost six months now. It's, it's just we're just a couple of days shy of that 
grisly milestone, to raise the death toll to 9,000. Now, Acklet itself acknowledges that this is probably a gross underestimate uh, of the real death toll simply because uh, it's very hard to get any news out of Sudan and what news does come tends to come from the big cities. So you don't know what's going on in, in for example, Darfur, where we know there's been very heavy fighting or in uh, North and South Kordofan provinces, uh, where we also know there's been heavy fighting. But the, it's it's harder to get information out of those uh, more rural places. So they, they acknowledge themselves. This is probably, you know, probably underestimates uh, how many people have actually died. But nevertheless, it is still, uh, you know, that number is continuing to increase. And the conflict really, which from what I can tell is almost completely uh, invisible these days between Ukraine, Gaza, et cetera, there's, there's not much the seemingly coverage of, of what's happening in Sudan, but uh, that's certainly still going on and it's worth remembering. Thanks, Derek. Um, let's talk about Niger, where the U.S. has finally declared that there was a coup. Yeah, it's been over two months, almost three months, I guess, at this point, uh, since the Nigerian military ousted that country's civilian government. The Biden administration on Tuesday finally got around to calling that obvious coup a coup. The administration had been hesitant to do so because designating something a coup and uh, by U.S. law triggers a whole lot of automatic suspensions of military aid, of financial aid. Um, this designation could cost Niger potentially hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, both on the military slash counterterrorism side and on the financial uh, economic side. Uh, the explanation that I saw offered to reporters from people in the administration was that they had decided essentially that there was there was nothing more to be gained by pretending that this was not a coup. Uh, they'd, they'd hoped, uh, I guess, uh, that not designating it a coup and maintaining that aid would give the U.S. some leverage to encourage the Nigerian junta to make a quick transition back to civilian governance. That seems to be completely out of the question at this point. Um, so I guess they decided to it was okay to drop the charade uh, and admit what really happened. There is, despite this designation, apparently still no plan to withdraw U.S. counterterrorism forces from Niger. And I will say those forces have been mostly uh, or maybe entirely at this point confined to base. They're not doing any real counterterrorism. They are still doing some drone flights and things like that. But but it's uh, been characterized more as, you know, reconnaissance to protect the the forces that are there rather than kind of proactive operations to try and identify uh, jihadists or anything of, of that nature. Nevertheless, I think this announcement could hasten the day when uh, the junta goes to the U.S. and says, we want these people out uh, ASAP, which they've already done, of course, uh, with France. The French military also this week began its withdrawal uh, from Niger. They've got about 1,400 or had at least, they, I think they've already taken 100 or so out, uh, but had about 1,400 soldiers in the country and they're planning to have them all out. This is a fairly arduous task and it has to be done uh, with an eye toward not leaving those forces vulnerable to, to attack while they're leaving. The plan is to have them all out by the end of the year. Thanks, Derek. Um, I think it makes sense to move on to the Russia-Ukraine war. And why don't we start with the Russian advance on Avdivka? Yes, Avdivka in uh, the last couple of weeks has become clearly the epicenter of the Russian, I don't know if you want to call it counter-counter-offensive, but whatever they're doing to try and A, uh, you know, take 
take more territory before the onset of winter and B, to divert Ukrainian forces from their counteroffensive uh, to defend some of these places. Avdivka, which is uh, just a bit north of the city of Donetsk, it seems to be the 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 current epicenter of, or the focus of Russian attention. They've been uh, bombarding it. They've been advancing on it on the ground. Uh, the Ukrainians say they're still holding out, but it sounds like a pretty fierce onslaught by the Russians. And I would uh, imagine uh, if if there is any gain here, and and again, there's there's sort of somewhat on a clock because of the onset of uh, the 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 kind of meat of autumn and then into winter it's not the greatest uh time to be campaigning or going on the offensive in ukraine so both sides here i think uh are on some some sort of a, a deadline if you will to try and gain as much territory as they can uh before uh they're really unable to they really have to settle in kind of hunker down uh, for the rest of the season. So uh, the Ukrainians are still pushing on their southern front. Uh, I have not seen any uh, indication of any substantial advances. Uh, they're also pushing in the areas around Bakhmut. I think there's still some effort to, to try and surround that city and, and potentially even try to retake it at some point. But I cannot uh, speak to any successes uh, that the Ukrainians have had in that regard either. Uh, let's talk about Zelensky, who has visited NATO because he seems to be concerned that aid is going to at least, if not run out, um, become less. What's the proper word? Uh, yeah, here. Zelensky. <laughs> uh, Z- yeah, uh, be reduced. I don't know. Uh, Zelensky <laughs> turned up in Brussels at NATO headquarters this week. Um, I, I don't know. I, it, I saw somebody, I saw one outlet report. This is a surprise visit, seems uh, you know, seems hard to imagine that he could have done this on a lark. Uh, but he was there for the meeting of the, what is called the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, which is a 54-member body uh, that has been coordinating support for the Ukrainian military since the Russian invasion began. Uh, he was there, obviously, to make a, an appeal for more weapons. Um, I, I suspect he's he's a little worried. I don't think he would say this out loud. It would uh, not serve him terribly well, but I suspect he's a little worried that attention is going to shift to Israel, especially U.S. attention in terms of who's getting the lion's share of military support. And, and he must be, I would, I would think, particularly concerned given that this, what's happened in Gaza has happened uh, in the wake of Ukrainian aid being left in limbo by uh, Congress when it passed its, its recent continuing resolution to keep the government open with no additional Ukraine funding. The administration, uh, the Biden administration, has been pressuring for some time now, pressuring Congress to uh, pass more Ukraine aid, to, uh, to appropriate more Ukraine aid. And that's uh, a tough sell for a lot of Republicans. It's also a tough sell given that the House of Representatives is now basically just a dysfunctional mess. So uh, they can't really do anything, uh, let alone f- continue funding the Ukraine war. Uh, the Biden administration did announce another $200 million package of ammunition, mostly uh, for Ukraine this week. But the indications were that this is like we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, like money's running out. So, yeah, I, I suspect uh, Zelensky's pretty nervous here. Now, the Biden administration is, is considering a lot of tricks, uh, rolling up Ukraine aid along with uh, uh, appropriations for Israel and appropriations for border security, kind of touching on everybody's uh, particular fetishes to try and force Ukraine aid through as a part of a, a more omnibus package that that's uh, drawn a lot of 
resistance from Republicans. So I don't know how far they're going to get with that, but uh, we will see. Derek, don't yuck the Republicans, yum. In a shocking upset, Russia appears to have lost its election for the United Nations Human Rights Council. Yeah, I really thought they were going to make it. Uh, it's it's a stunner. Uh, they were. It's a real Truman defeats Dewey moment, I guess. Uh, no, the the UN General Assembly voted on Tuesday uh, for uh, seats. You know, starting next year on the Human Rights Council. The the way this the procedure for these these kinds of votes for all the UN's the UN's various councils, most of these elections are uncontested. There are blocks, regional blocks. So like Asia gets a certain number of seats and you have a certain number of countries run. In this case, there were four open Asian seats and four countries ran. So they all they all got elected. There were a couple of contested regions. Uh, one of them was uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, where there were three three seats available and uh, Brazil, Cuba, and the Dominican Republic were elected. Peru also ran and, and did not get elected. Uh, the other one that was contested was East Europe, uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, there were two Eastern European seats up for grabs and Russia was contesting uh, with Bulgaria and Albania. Shockingly, Russia was the, uh, the odd man out. I will say uh, that of the 193 voting members of the UN General Assembly, uh, the Russians got 83 votes. And I think uh, that's obviously put them a distant third behind the other two. And it, it suggests that they uh, do not have a huge amount of support around the world. But I think that was probably more votes than the United States and, and other North Atlantic polities would have expected maybe or hoped uh, that Russia could get in a vote like this. So as a barometer uh, for just general kind of uh, world feeling about this, about Russia, maybe a little uncomfortable for the, the, the West to see, uh, to see them get even that many votes, 83, uh, probably a little on the high side. Thanks, Derek. Um, let's move on to a really interesting story that occurred between Estonia and Finland, where it appears as if a Baltic connector pipeline and a telecon cable have been severed. Uh, what's going on? Yes, uh, the Baltic connector is a is a combination gas pipeline and a telecommunications cable uh, running from Estonia, or running between Estonia and Finland along the floor of the Baltic Sea. On Sunday, apparently, uh, officials in Finland detected. Uh, something wrong with the pipeline. Uh, there's something wrong with the pressure uh, in the pipeline. So they investigated and found out that both the pipeline and the cable have been cut. Uh, now, they're investigating whether this was an intentional act. First of all, they have to determine whether it was you know, a kind of natural something, some natural phenomenon caused this or if it was uh, done through artificial means. I think the consensus at this point is something, some outside artificial uh, force had to be involved in, in cutting both of these things. Um, then you have to determine whether it was deliberate or, or accidental. Uh, that's still in the, that investigation is still in the early stages. I will say, um, my understanding is that the pipeline and the cable are not, uh, right on top of each other. They're actually positioned somewhat apart. So it's a little, it would be a little unusual for an accident to be able to cut both of these things. So they're, I, it seems like they're leaning toward a, an act, a deliberate act of sabotage. Now, obviously, there are some 
echoes here of the Nord Stream pipeline's destruction. Uh, I think the the motive in this case would be much different. Obviously, uh, uh, Nord, the Nord Stream pipelines were blown up. There's no evidence uh, of an explosion uh, in this case. It looks like instead that they were uh, something came along and severed these things uh, without, you know, uh, through some mechanical means, I guess. Uh, so there's, you know, a few echoes, but but it's not exactly the same thing. And, and again, I'm not sure. Uh, what the motive would be, but uh, something to watch because th- these pieces of infrastructure are potentially targets for who knows, uh, you know, uh, anybody that wants to to cause problems. And you know, obviously, attention will. I think if it's determined that it was a deliberate act, I, I'm I'm sure that attention will focus on Russia, uh, whether that makes sense or not. Derek, I'm going to pull an audible because I wanted to ask if you had heard anything about um, the banning of pro-Palestine protests in France. Have you seen anything about this? Um, only that it only that it happened. Um, so it did happen. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's they they banned or they I, I mean they banned it or they're have seriously considering a ban. I, I uh, I've just seen headlines uh, talking about a, a possible ban on pro-Palestine protests. Now you know this is happening all over Europe. I think the UK government is either, uh, or I don't think they've done it yet, but they've, they've talked about, uh, our friends, uh, Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman, uh, have talked about banning the Palestinian flag, uh, essentially making that a, uh, a crime to, to brandish it. So a uh, lot of anti-Palestinian set, uh, sentiment, uh, out there right now, especially I think in, in Europe. Thank you, Derek. Uh, Let's talk about what's going on in Colombia, where the ceasefire with the EMC has begun. Yes, uh, the Colombian government ceasefire with FARC Estado Mayor Central, uh, the militant group of uh, ex-FARC dissident fighters, went into effect on Sunday. There are plans, I believe, on Monday to kind of formally reify the ceasefire and begin peace talks. But I have to say there is already a report uh, of a, a fighting between EMC uh, fighters and government security forces that took place, I think, on uh, either Wednesday, I believe Wednesday. Uh, the government is saying that one of its soldiers was killed. The EMC is saying that it was the government that attacked their fighters and a couple of their fighters, three of them, I, I think they're saying, were killed along with a civilian um, so this is, uh, this is the sort of thing, obviously, that would threaten uh, the official adoption of the ceasefire and certainly could threaten peace talks. So just something, I guess, to watch for. The, the EMC is one of the largest, maybe the largest, uh, fac- ex-FARC uh, faction. So uh, it's a big uh, part of uh, Gustavo Petro's uh, efforts to negotiate uh, peace agreements with with all these various Colombian armed groups uh, alongside ELN, which is uh, currently in a ceasefire uh, with the government. But this is another uh, another pretty big uh, target for him. Uh, thanks, Eric. Let's talk about Venezuela, where there appears to be a deal in the works for U.S. sanctions relief. Yeah, this was reported. I saw it reported by Bloomberg. There were a few other outlets, I think, jumping on on Bloomberg's report that, that reported that this week the uh, U.S. and Venezuelan governments m- may be close to a deal that would provide some level of sanctions relief to Venezuela in return for electoral reforms, uh, the goal being to ensure that next year's uh, general election in Venezuela would be 
uh, quote unquote, free and fair would meet whatever the U.S. standards for that are. Um, obviously, without a completed deal, it's hard to know exactly what they're talking about. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's some guesswork involved here, some leaks maybe. But some of the things I've, I've seen thrown around are uh, that the uh, government of Nicolas Maduro would lift the bans, the legal bans that are currently in place for a number of prominent opposition leaders to run for office, uh, fe- effectively, you know, allowing them to run for president. Uh, there would be uh, some agreement to include uh, international election monitors uh, to try and keep an eye on the vote next year. Uh, in return, the United States would lift, uh, I think it would start with uh, some oil and banking related sanctions that would allow Venezuela to uh, start to do a, a some business internationally. The banking sanctions would allow it to maybe go claim some frozen funds in, in foreign banks. The oil sanctions would uh, allow it to maybe start exporting uh, oil onto market, some le- some level of oil. I don't want to say these things would completely come off. I, I don't think that's in the uh, in the cards, but there is does appear to be uh, some kind of a deal that's. Um, I guess they're making progress. I don't know how close they are to completing it, but uh, sounds like they are uh, on their way anyway. Well, sanctions relief would be a good thing. Um, let's talk about Guatemala. Uh, and if anyone hasn't heard it, please check out our special with Rachel Nolan on the recent Guatemalan election. Uh, Derek, there seem to be pro-Aravalo protests. What's going on? Yeah, uh, the protests in support of uh, Arevalo, Bernardo Arevalo, the president-elect, have been going on for several days. Uh, protesters have been blocking roads and highways, um, essentially demanding uh, that this, uh, they would say at least trumped up investigation into Arevalo and his seed party for alleged electoral shenanigans, uh, be dropped. And that attorney general Maria Consuelo Porras, who is the driving force behind this investigation, uh, that she resigned, that, that those are the two demands. Uh, the current government president, Alejandro Giamatti, uh, Giamatti sent out riot police, I believe on Monday, to begin breaking up these these barricades Monday or Tuesday, uh, to begin breaking up these roadblocks, and um, you, there are I haven't seen any indications of widespread violence, but that's the kind of thing obviously that can trigger uh, a, a much more heated situation. And Arevalo has been warning of uh, the possibility that uh, the government would manufacture essentially try to try to provoke. Uh, violence as an excuse to really clamp down on the uh, pro Arevalo movement, and and uh, again, the the whole thrust here seems to be to uh, kneecap his presidency before it even gets started. With uh, Arevalo promising to investigate corruption and take a very hard line, and with both Porras and Giamatti having a number of corruption <laughs> accusations uh, hanging over their heads, I don't think you need to to do much advanced math uh, to uh, to figure out what's going on here. Thanks, Derek. And uh, let's. It's been a tough news week, and uh, this this last news story is a really bad one. You know, friend, personal friend of me and you, big supporter of American prestige, Senator Menendez seems to be in trouble. What's going on? 
Yeah, boy, I'll tell you, um, you think you know a guy. No, uh, uh, folks, no, we've I mean, we've done an episode on this. Bob Menendez uh, is under indictment for having taken bribes, allegedly, sorry, sorry, allegedly uh, taken bribes from the Egyptian government uh, to grease the wheels for uh, for them in Washington. Uh, Menendez being the uh, once and I guess he would hope future chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That seems less and less likely by the day. He's now been indicted a second time for uh, serving as an unregistered foreign agent of the Egyptian government. Um, This is, on one level, a a kind of slap on the wrist charge. It means he he was acting as an agent for uh, Egypt without, I guess, filing the proper paperwork with the uh, the State Department or the Justice Department, but you know it's it's as close as you can get to saying he was spying uh, on Egypt's behalf without going all the way to spying charges, which would be much more serious. And maybe that'll come still, but uh, you know I think when we had Ken Klippenstein on to Ken Klippenstein, sorry, uh, on to talk about Menendez's case, he had written an article about this about the fact that there was an intelligence investigation. Uh, underway into to Menendez activities, and he had allegedly provided information on staffing at the U.S. Embassy in Cairo to the Egyptian government, which is, you know, really crossing a line. Uh, so this is, uh, I guess, the first indication that that investigation has uh, has borne fruit. I uh, it, we'll have to see if uh, we see if it if it bears any more fruit. But certainly, Menendez, uh, his legal jeopardy, I think, has gotten much worse with this. Uh, the corruption charges are one thing, and he's been in, under indictment for corruption in the past and has beaten it. Uh, this is this is going to be something else, and it's only going to intensify calls for him to resign completely from the Senate, which he has resisted so far. But it's uh, it's getting harder and harder to see how he comes back from this. Thanks, Derek, and and thanks everyone for listening. We really appreciate it, and we'll be with you again soon. Bye, bye.